All right, Philippians chapter 4. We are finishing up this letter of joy this morning for some final thoughts on the joy-filled life from Paul. Uh, you know, any of you, when you go to the store, you ever find like, sometimes they'll mark things like two for one. Like you buy one, you get one free. It's a two for one sale, buy one, get one free. Every now and then, like, buy one, get two free. And if you're like me, you're just a sucker for that stuff. I mean, I, if it's buy one, get one free, I'm pretty much coming home with it. And Amy would be like, we have six in the cupboard. It's like, I know, but it was buy one, get one free. You know? Anyway, I'm saving us money right now, honey. Anyway, um, yeah, I love a sale. Uh, today is a sale on sermons because there's probably about five sermons in the one sermon I'm going to preach today. So it's buy one, get five free. And I'm still going to try to do that in a timely fashion. And you can pray about that quietly in your seats. So if you open your, script, the, your Bibles, the scriptures to Philippians chapter four, um, we are going to pick it up in verse four. And Paul is going to offer us this morning five final ways to experience joy in this world. Five final ways that we, as the children of God, can have joy-filled lives. And here's how Paul starts us off. The very first thing he challenges us, he challenges us with is this. Find joy in the presence of God. Find joy in the presence of God. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul starts off by saying that at the root of our lives, at the core of our joy, must be the Lord. There are a lot of things in this world in which and through which we can find joy. And I want to say real clearly, that's okay. That's a good thing. God wants you to enjoy your kids, to enjoy your food, to enjoy your job, to enjoy your life. He longs for you to find joy in this world. He made it for you and for me. Us finding joy in this world is a good, good thing. But he does say this. He says, find your ultimate joy in me. Find your ultimate joy in something that can never change and that will ever move. Find your joy in this immovable thing that you are a child of the Most High God. So that no matter what happens relationally in your life with friends or family or your spouse or kids, no matter what happens financially in your life with the stock market, or your job, or your pay, no matter what happens physically in your life, with your health, or educationally with your grades, or professionally with your work, Paul says, at the foundation of your joy must be this one consistent immovable reality, that he is Lord and King and Master, and he loves you. Root your joy in this truth, he says. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. It's sort of a weird line in the middle of this passage. Let your gentleness be evident to all. It's almost like he kind of shifts gears there. And yet when you understand what he's saying, it makes perfect sense. Because the word gentleness in Greek means calm in the face of trouble. Or kindness in the face of unkind people. What Paul is saying here is have such an anchor, such a foundation in God that you aren't rattled 
the way other people are when things in this world go south. And then, of course, he moves on to talk about anxiety. Because when trouble in this world comes, and it will come, Paul knows there will be a war in your soul between peace and worry, joy and anxiety, because anxiety is perhaps the greatest joy robber of them all. Nothing in this world will seek to rob you of the joy-filled life that Jesus longs for you to have, perhaps nothing greater than anxiety. In fact, if joy is Batman, anxiety is the Joker. If joy is Luke Skywalker, anxiety is Darth Vader. If joy is good, tasty Taco Bell after church every week, anxiety is Pastor Gabby's judgmental and condescending remarks about my lunch. She's not here this week, as you can tell. And here's what Paul says. He says, listen, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, when you think about all the things that this world offers us to be anxious about, that is a tall order. Don't be anxious about anything. And just to be clear, Paul is not saying here, never experience anxiety. That would be foolish. Anxiety can be a real helpful thing. Anxiety is there, it's a God-given emotion, it's there to alert us that something is not right, that something might be potentially dangerous. This past summer, we were in a cabin down in Northern California. We'd gone to spend some time with some family friends, and we were all together in a couple cabins on this lake in the middle of the forest. And one night, as everybody was going to bed, my buddy Jim said, let's hang out a little longer. And so we grabbed a couple chairs and we went out to the front of this cabin, up the driveway, right to the edge of the street. And we put the chairs down and we sat and we just had some guy time, just talked for a while, right? And uh, there's nothing, by the way, better than late night guy time talks is the best. So we just talked and caught up and talked about life and love and loss and the Lord and other L things for probably a good 80 minutes. And then all of a sudden, uh, I heard something behind us, kind of in the forest. And so the house, the cabin was behind us, and there's another cabin kind of next to it over there. And remember, we're in the middle of the forest, and so it's very, very dark. There was one street light, like, up the road a little bit from us. It kind of spilled into the forest just a bit. But back in the darkness between the houses, we could hear the rustling of leaves. And my buddy Jim said, is there someone back there? Like, we thought maybe another one of our other friends was, you know, sneaking up on us or something. And then all of a sudden, stepping into a little patch of light was the biggest brown bear I have ever seen. (laughs) And I know I'm an exaggerator. I know you guys know this. My wife tells me all the time. My buddy Jim is not an exaggerator. He's a realist, and he will confirm this story. That is the biggest, I thought it was a grizzly. The thing on all fours like, stood like this tall. It was huge. And it was only about 20 yards away from us. And we were quite a ways away from the house. And we got up, and we scampered to that front door um, like you'd never seen us move before. And, uh, and then we stood there at the door, kind of like ready to go in and just watch this bear as he moseyed up to the street and then started rummaging through trash cans. <laughs> Here's the point, friends. In that moment, I felt anxiety. 
good anxiety, godly anxiety. Paul is not saying be void of healthy emotion. He's saying don't continue in anxiety. That's the verb tense that's offered here. It's don't continue in anxiety. Don't let anxiety consume your mind. Don't let the worries of this life fill your thoughts and spin endlessly through your thinking. You ever watched a cow chew on a piece of cud just over and over and over and over and over? He says, do not let worry sit on your brain like a cow chews on a piece of of cud. This is his command. Do not be anxious about anything. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, every time there is a command in scripture, every time God says, do this, live this way, the command is always rooted in the deeply held truth or belief. And the truth that Paul wants to drive down into our hearts, the truth that enables and empowers us to be people who are not anxious about anything is this truth. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. That's the truth. Because the Lord is near, do not be anxious about anything. But then Paul takes it a step further. It's as if Paul is saying, but it's not just enough to know that God is near. He says, if you want to have deep joy and peace in this world, even when things are tough, even when things go south, even when there's struggle and difficulty and hurt and pain, if you want to have deep joy and peace, you have to experience the deep closeness of the Lord. You can't just know that the Lord is near. You have to step into his nearness. You have to consciously choose to step into God's presence. He says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That word prayer in Greek, it's just the general word for prayer. It's just the word for prayer that we're supposed to have all the time. Just the conversation that we're supposed to, as believers, live in with the Lord. But then he also adds this word petition. By prayer and petition, he says. The word petition is a word that describes Going to God when you have a specific need. Going to God with a request when things are bad or tough or difficult or devastating. But Paul is saying here is this. Whether you are facing the normal worries and struggles of life or something bigger, something more specific, something that seems almost impossible to keep off your brain. Paul says don't know, don't just know Don't just intellectually assent to the fact that God is near. Put yourself in close proximity to your father through prayer, through talking to him, through consciously embracing his presence with you in whatever you're facing. Friends, the biblical response to stress and anxiety and worry is prayer. The Bible says you're worried, pray. You're stressed out, pray. You got fear that's overwhelming your life and heart, pray. Draw near to God. Not just pray in in like a robotic sort of legalistic sense where you just mutter words. He's saying enter into a conversation with the Lord. Enter into knowing and feeling and experiencing his closeness to you. And so I have to ask you, how is your prayer life these days? And I'm not, I'm not talking about before mealtime prayers. I'm all for before mealtime prayers. They're good prayers. But I'm 
wanting us to go farther than this? Do you just believe in God? Do you just know that he's there? Is it just sort of a concept that you live with? Or are you constantly and consistently experiencing the closeness of his presence in your life through prayer? It is essential for living a life with Jesus. It's essential for having the life of joy that God so longs for you to have. And I'll say this, friends, you cannot get there without prayer. It's something I'm becoming more and more convinced of in my life these days. And then Paul says this, and when you do this, when you enter into prayer in this way, when you draw close to your heavenly Father, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he uses military language here. Remember, Philippi is a military city. A bunch of retired veterans there, and they understand what he's saying. He's saying, God is going to post some soldiers around your mind. And around, it reminds me of the air base where I grew up as a kid. I mean, every time you drive onto base or off base, there was just a number of guys standing there with machine guns. You always felt pretty safe when you were on base. Paul is saying that's what God does. He just posts up a guard around your mind and around your heart, protecting you from the perils of anxiety and worry. How does he post those guards around your mind and heart? When you pray, when you enter into his presence. Next, Paul says, find joy in pondering what is good. If you haven't guessed, we're doing P words today. First, there's presence. Now there's pondering. Finally, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, you've seen me, you know what my life is like, I'm in prison I'm sitting on death row waiting for a verdict. My life hangs in the balance and yet I continue to have joy. He says, where where am I finding such joy? And Paul says, in my mind. I'm holding on to joy in my mind, in what I think about, in what I choose to ponder. In this passage, the word think is the word legizomai. Legizomai, it means to dwell on to mull over, to consider, to contemplate, to calculate, to ponder. It's that constant conscious sort of stream of thinking in your brain. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell on. In other words, you have a choice to make. You get to decide, what will I allow to sit in my thinking, to spin around? What will I allow my mind to dwell on and ponder? Paul says, think about whatever is true. And it really is a great question to ask yourself, by the way, particularly in a moment of stress or struggle or anxiety or fear. Just ask yourself this question. Is what I'm thinking about, is what I'm considering, is what I'm pondering right now, is it true? Is it valid? Can I trust it? You see, so often what we allow to run through our minds isn't even true. 
We invent stories. We create narratives. Do you ever do this? Do you ever watch someone do this? Do you ever experience someone doing this about you? Just create a story. Create something. I believe this about what my wife thinks about me or about what my kids are doing. And I create a narrative and it's so strong. I convince myself it's true only to find out later it wasn't true at all. But I'm convinced of it. And then I gather evidence, right? As I, as I move through the world, I gather evidence to sort of reinforce the narrative that I'm believing. And the question is, not can you convince yourself is it true? The question is, is it true? We also love to churn on the negative what-ifs of life. What if this? What if that? What if this happens? What if that happens? Friends, that's not truth. That's possibility. And it only creates anxiety and worry and stress for us. We must get away from this. Paul says, think about whatever is noble. This is great. That word noble in Greek, it's a word that describes a person who moves throughout the world as if the world were the temple of God. In other words, only think about things in life that you'd feel free to think about in church. Now, some of you, I want to put some more caveats on that because I'm nervous for what you're thinking about in church. So let's say it this way. Only think about things you'd think about if God were present and he knew what you were thinking. If he was sitting in the room with you and he could just see what you were thinking. That's what that word noble is. Think about things that are noble. Think about things that you wouldn't be ashamed to think, out, think about in front of God. He says, Whatever is right, some translations say just. The idea here is this. When you look around the world, dwell on things being right. Imagine things being the way God would long for them to be. Dream that this world would be the way God wants it to be. And let that fill your mind and heart. Let that drive your life and push you forward. Think about what's right or what is righteous, what is right in the eyes of God. Be captivated by that. He says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Paul is just pummeling us with adjectives here to say this, be really conscious about what you think about. You know, there's a lot of current research happening in our world right now in the area of cognitive psychology. And cognitive psychologists are now saying that by every day, by simply taking time, just a few minutes, to list out things that you are thankful for, specifically in the morning, you can train or retrain your brain to be more positive. You can teach your mind to be less negative and pessimistic and depressed by simply being intentionally thankful. So this is great news for those of you who have considered yourself for a while or maybe for a really long time a glass half-empty person. Here's the good news. You do not have to be this way. You do not have to be pessimistic or negative or a downer. You can train your mind. You can change your brain to be more positive. And by the way, friends, this is actually nothing new. The Bible has been saying this for centuries. Look back at verse 6. Paul says, Pray with thanksgiving. 
You want to do something fun this week? Go through the New Testament and just look for the word thankful or thanksgiving and see how many times God just says, be thankful, be thankful, pray with thanksgiving, offer like words of thanksgiving and encouragement. He's constantly saying this. And it's not just the power of positive thinking. It's a mind that is controlled by the spirit of God. It's a mind that is leaning into the thinking and the life that God longs for us to have. And here's another thing. Young people, Hear me on this one. It's too bad they all just left. Um, Not to say that the rest of you aren't young, but, you know, not as young. Uh, So this will apply for all of us. Listen to this. This is maybe like the best thing to write down and take home today. What enters your mind repeatedly shapes your mind ultimately. What enters your mind repeatedly will shape your mind ultimately. This means the shows you watch matter. The music you listen to matters. The video games you play matter. The stuff you view on your computer matters. The conversations you have matter. See, what enters your mind repeatedly shapes your mind ultimately. Because this is why we must continue to commit ourselves to the constant reading of scripture, it sounds so simple, it sounds so basic, and yet it is absolutely essential for our formation. It's essential for transforming our minds and the way we think. Because if you want to know what's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy and what isn't, this book will help you discern that. This book will fill your mind with truth and challenge and encouragement and wisdom. This book will help you think the way God longs for you to think. And I know sometimes it's confusing and I know you don't always understand everything you read. I'm a pastor and that's true of me as well. And yet you never read scripture and walk away not feeling like God has done something in your soul, has done something in your brain. Great thinking leads to great joy. And so Paul says, find joy in pondering what is good. Next, Paul says, find joy in Christ's provision. Listen to what he writes. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He's writing to this church in Philippi. He's writing from jail. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, that last little verse there, I can do all things through... I can do all this, it says. That's the new translation. I learned I can do all things. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's like maybe one of the worst quoted verses ever. I have used that verse in so many bad theological ways in my life. Most of the time we as Christians like slap that verse onto anything we're doing as sort of like motivation that we can get it done, right? I remember saying that verse in my mind during like basketball preseason conditioning when our coach used to make us run and I felt like I was gonna puke. I can do all things through Christ, right? Um, And maybe that is a fit because really what this verse is about is this verse really says in Christ, because he supplies all that you need, you can make it through even the most difficult, dire circumstances in this world. 
He will sustain you because he's provided what you need. And even when the world is no longer providing what you need, he is there and he is ultimately what you need. Paul says, I, he tells the Philippians, I'm okay, why? I have all I need in Christ. My greatest needs, my deepest desires have all been provided for by him. And friends, you know what that does for Paul? Because he has his needs met by Jesus, he's now freed up to choose joy over resentment, even though his situation is really bad. He's now freed up to be gracious. He's freed up to be forgiving. He's freed up to give people the benefit of the doubt. Let me give you just a little background here. Let me like frame this up for you just a second. 10 years have gone by. 10 years since the last Philippian gift has made its way to Paul. You see, 10 years ago, Paul established the church in Philippi, and then things didn't go so well. He was arrested by the Romans, by the powers of that city. He was thrown in jail. Eventually, when he was freed and released, he could not stay there any longer. And so he moved on, and he went to Thessalonica, and he was sharing the gospel in Thessalonica, and the Philippians sent gifts to support him in his ministry there. But since that time, 10 years ago, there had been no gifts, no gifts from the Philippians. And during that time, Paul found himself in big trouble. He'd landed in prison again, this time in Rome, this time on trial for his life. And in all that and through all that, Paul has heard nothing from the Philippians. Nothing from these people who claim to be his friends. Nothing from this church that, were, that, were, that was filled with children, his children in the Lord, people that he had shared the gospel with. And now for a decade, he's heard nothing from them in, in the most dire circumstances of his life. You think Paul had the right to feel just a little bit entitled? You think he could have begun to harbor some bitterness or some resentments toward the, toward the Philippians? Can you imagine Epaphroditus showing up with this gift from them and Paul saying, are you kidding me, Epaphroditus? It's about time. I've been sitting here on death row. You guys don't even care about me. Do you care about me? Well, you sure have a crummy way of showing it. An entire decade? Are you kidding me? Is that what Paul says? No. Instead, you know what he does? He gives them the benefit of the doubt. This is a real simple thing, and yet I think it's something we as Christians can learn much from. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last, right? No emphasis, my emphasis added, right? That at last, after 10 whole years, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned. I believe you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He says, yeah, it's been a while since I've heard from you guys, but I know I'm choosing to believe it wasn't because you weren't concerned. I'm choosing to believe it wasn't because you didn't care. It was because you lacked what? He says you lacked opportunity. And that word opportunity in Greek means the season. What he says is, you know, for whatever reason, it just wasn't the right time. It just wasn't the right season. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. And Paul can say this. He can have so much grace because why? He didn't need their gift to have peace and joy and contentment. 
He already had all that he needed in Christ. He had that from God. And so because he's already filled in Christ, he is now freed up to be gracious and forgiving and to be a person who gives the benefit of the doubt. Are you so filled up with the provision of Jesus in your life that you're the kind of person that tends to give the benefit of the doubt to people? Even when they hurt you or snub you or wrong you? Even when they offend you? You know, I was listening with my wife this week to a famous comedic author who was giving a graduation address at at a university and he was talking with these young college students who were graduating and moving out of college and into the world and into life. And it was a humorous, because he's, he's, you know, a comedian, it was a humorous talk and yet sort of filled with little nuggets of wisdom and little bits of challenge. And he offered a number of uh, pieces of advice. And one of the things he said was this. He said, point three, in other words, the third piece of advice I will give you is this. Listen, here's what he says. He says, college students, as you go off into the world, choose one thing to be terribly, terribly offended by. This is as opposed to the dozens or possibly hundreds that many of you are currently juggling. (laughs) Think about that for a second. (laughs) Because those same words might apply to you and me. (laughs) You see, people in our world are so easily offended. Sometimes we are so easily offended. It is so easy to grow cynical in this culture, to assume the worst about people and to let bitterness and resentment creep into our relationships, to let one bad experience color your opinion and thoughts about someone forever, to just get burned, maybe not just once, but a few times, and then decide to just cut them off and disengage You know, I've been battling this week um, about this very thing. A friend of mine, uh, someone who I've been close with for a long time, hurt my feelings, said some things, got back to me. Someone in this room, by the way. No, I'm kidding. No one in this room. Um, (laughs) And in my flesh, in the sinful human part of Dave, there's this desire to hold a grudge. I will never forget, right? There's this desire to assume the worst. But Paul challenges me in this passage. His grace for the Philippians inspires me. And it's as if God is saying, Dave, don't you have everything you need in Jesus? Aren't you so affirmed and cared for and provided for by him that you can be graceful and forgiving and offer people the benefit of the doubt? Aren't you the kind of person who should, above all people, offer others, even those who may have hurt you, the benefit of the doubt? Isn't that who you're called to be in Christ? Friends, what about you? Where in your life? What situation or place or relationship Are you tempted to carry a grudge? Where is your heart grown a bit crusty? Where in your life are you needing to extend some grace and give the relationship a fresh start? Who is the person in your life that God is saying, you have all you need in me. Give them the benefit of the doubt.
even if it's your mom, especially if it's your mom or your kid or your spouse or your dear, dear friend, because those are the people that sometimes can hurt us the most. I'll tell you this, bitterness and resentment will rob you of joy, but when you live out all that Christ, and you live out of all that Christ has provided for you, you will find joy. You will find joy. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles, Paul says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, except for you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, in this section, there's a lot in there, but Paul is driving at this point. He's saying, find joy in gospel partnership. He actually says two things. He kind of offers the same truth from two different angles. He says, I find great comfort and joy. Not so much in your gift, not so much in what you sent, although it was nice, but more in the fact that you sent it. You see, what Paul says in this section is, I may not have needed your gifts, but to know that you are with me, to know that you haven't forgotten me, that you, that you care means more than you know. He says, it was good of you to share in my troubles. It was good of you to share in my troubles. That's a statement. Think about that for a minute, friends. Think about what it means to share in someone's troubles, to have someone share in yours. Do you have people in your life like this? Someone who will share in your troubles, who will walk into the broken, messy, hurtful places of your life and just be with you in those moments, in those places of hurt and pain and difficulty? Not do you have friends that will have coffee with you and talk about weather and sports. Those are good friends. But God is saying there's something more. There's people I've designed you to do life with people in a deep, authentic, vulnerable way where people can walk in and share in your troubles and in that there is great joy. Maybe they can't fix your troubles. Maybe they can't solve your problems. They probably can't, but they can be there. They can listen. They can sit by your side. They can pray for you. You see, Paul says, I have all I need in Jesus and yet to have you as well. To have your support and your gift and your encouraging words and just to know that you have my back. I remember when I was in seminary, I have to stay up late to finish papers. Um, I was full-time youth pastoring and then going to seminary at night and often when papers were due, because I'm a classic procrastinator, I'd be up till two, three in the morning when, you know, your brain cells are at their best. You do your best work at that time. Um, And it was a lonely in Minnesota in the den of winter at two in the morning, you know, it's like, oh, and you just felt so alone and overwhelmed. And there were times I'd just ask Amy, we were newly married. Um, we didn't have any of these children weighing us down at that point. <laughs> and I would say, hon, could you just stay on the couch for a while? 
She'd cut up, up in a blanket and grab her book and sit there and read and maybe fall asleep. And just having her in the room, she didn't help me with my papers ever. <laughs> but just have her in the room, just her presence, just the fact that she was with me, I just felt so much joy and empowerment from that. And then Paul says, but it's not just joy for me, it's joy for you. He says, there's joy in this partnership for me. I'm finding great joy in it, but I know there's joy in this partnership for you. He says, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You see, in the Old Testament, there was this sacrificial system where you would offer a sacrifice with the goal of pleasing God. And to please God, you would have to offer that sacrifice with a pure heart and right motives. And what Paul is saying here is that even though the formal system of sacrifice is finished, God still calls his people to sacrifice, to give sacrificially, to set their needs aside in order to meet the needs of others. And Paul says, this is who you are and what you've done, Philippian church. And he says, and I know that as you've done this, you have found joy and you will continue to discover joy. Friends, we will discover and be reminded that God can and will and does meet our needs when we move into the struggles and pain of others. There's just something about walking with someone through a difficult situation, through pain and difficulty and stress and anxiety, that God uses that to remind us of the riches and the treasure we have in him. Friends, I know this firsthand. I have one of, the most, uh, one of the greatest blessings of my role as a pastor is that I have the opportunity to come alongside people and walk with them through difficult things. And friends, sometimes it's, it's difficult. Sometimes it's trying. Sometimes I drive away from ho- houses in the car and I weep. But there is a deep sense of satisfaction and, and gratitude because God uses them and, and their situation to form and remind me of who he is. He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. When you walk into struggle and difficulty and suffering with other people, God like, will meet all your needs according to his riches. This is like saying, we're going to have a party next week right here. Bill Gates is throwing it according to his riches. Now that, you guys are, I know you guys are all coming, Right? You would all show up for that. Like not many of you came to the all night prayer thing the other night on Friday, guilt and shame right here, right now. But you would come to the Bill Gates party. Why? Because according to his riches, you know that's gonna be a pretty awesome party. Paul says, when you walk into pain and difficulty and suffering, when you, when you enter into partnership for the gospel with someone else, then God offers you his riches, not earthly riches, eternal riches, riches that go well beyond money and possessions in this world, riches like peace and contentment and satisfaction and deep lasting joy, stuff that money and the things of this world can never ever buy you. Paul says, find joy in gospel partnership in the struggle of doing God's will together and there will be joy. And final point, Paul seems to end his letter, you know, to our God and Father, be glory and ever and ever, amen, right? And one more thing. (laughs) Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, 
especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And if you were a first century Philippian Christian and you had gathered in Lydia's house because you'd gotten word that Epaphroditus was back from Rome and that he had in hand a letter from Paul. And if you were there that night when they gathered and Epaphroditus stood up and he read this letter, you would have been amazed and you would have been thinking deeply about all the things that Paul says in this entire book, in this entire letter, all the wonderful things he talked about. You'd be thinking about the fact that you are a citizen of heaven, that Jesus is the example and the way of the full and blessed and joyful life, the way he hung on the cross. You'd be thinking about all these wonderful things that Paul said. And then as he begins to read these, these lines, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, you'd be thinking, ah, the letter's almost over. He's wrapping it up. And then at the very end, Epaphroditus would have said, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And the entire room would have gone, <gasps> what? Are you kidding me? especially those that belong to Caesar's household? Are you telling me that the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has infiltrated even Caesar's household? You see, Caesar was the enemy. Caesar was the one who had Paul locked up and in chains for preaching the gospel. Caesar was the king and ruler and master who says, I am Lord. I am Lord and no one else is Lord. And if you even dare proclaim that anyone, even this Jesus is Lord, you will be tortured, you will be locked up, you will be ridiculed and mocked and discriminated against. Caesar would not have it. And yet that very gospel, that amazing good news that Caesar's not, good, not Lord, but Jesus is Lord, has even infiltrated his own home. And the Christians in Philippi would have said, the power of the gospel is amazing. God can truly do what I never imagined he could do. God can tr truly do anything because this gospel, this good news about Jesus is the most captivating, compelling, life-giving message this world has ever known. And friends, Paul is saying here, find joy in the power of the gospel. He's reminding you and me with these Simple words, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He's reminding you and me that no matter what we face, no matter what this world brings, no, what, no matter what obstacles may stand in your way, God is still at work and he is the most powerful force this world has ever known. And so maybe you're facing something this morning, something that seems big and overwhelming, something that you cannot try as you might get out of your brain. Maybe you're in relationship with someone and you've been praying for them for years and you've not seen them come to Christ and you've been thinking to yourself, I don't know if it'll ever happen. I've got some people in my life just like that. Friends, I think Paul offers these final words to speak directly to us in these moments, to say, never give up on God. Never give up on God because the power of the gospel is even greater than you can imagine. And by the way, friends, when you extrapolate that story, that little line out about 250 years, do you know what happens? The emperor of Rome himself gets on his knees, Constantine, and says, I'm not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the gospel exploded all over the globe. You know where it started? Right here. Especially those who belong 
to Caesar's household, you see, you never know what God's up to. You never know what he might be doing in and through you right now for the future of his kingdom. Tomorrow, next week, or maybe even centuries down the road. And so this morning, we will again gather as God's people, and we will come to these tables, and we will take bread, and we will take the cup, not because it's routine, not because we're trying really hard to be religious, but because God says, when you gather, remember and declare again just how powerful I am, that I am so powerful that not even the grave could hold me down, that not even sin and death can win a victory in this life. We grab the bread and we grab the cup as a way of saying, yeah, yeah. Our God, his gospel is the most powerful thing this world has ever known. So I'm gonna ask you this morning to stop for a minute and go back to point one. That point about the presence of God and consciously being close to him. I'm gonna ask you for a minute to just take a moment and get close to your father again. Just go climb in his lap and ask him if there's anything you need to talk about. Maybe there's some worries or some stresses or some anxieties on your heart you just need to like offer them to him. Maybe there's some sin you just need to confess. Maybe there's some hopes and dreams that you just want to talk to him about. But whatever it is, just climb in his lap, get close to him, and then come down here, grab the bread, grab the cup, bring it back to your seat, hold on to him. We're going to take those together this morning. Hold on to those. In just a moment, we're going to declare that God is a powerful God and that this gospel is the most powerful message this world has ever known. Father, thank you for this time. We motored through a lot of scripture today, Lord, and it's my prayer, God, that you would sink it deeply into our hearts. Help us resist the temptation to grab a hold of instant gratifying, fastly fleeting joy and happiness that this world offers and give us the courage and the discipline and the boldness to reach deeper, to reach farther, to walk with you and to experience joy that will never fail us, joy that runs deep, to be and become and experience the life of joy that you long for us to have, God. I'm praying that for us. I'm praying that for myself. I'm praying that for our church. As we come to the table, Lord, we remember and again declare who you are, how great you are, and the power that you have. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.